0: You are listening to Single Service. My name is Arno Martire, and I am your host. Single Service is a podcast dealing with design, architecture, business and city building in which I interview an expert on a specific subject matter. Together, we dive into that topic and challenge conventional thinking in a thought-provoking conversation. I sincerely hope that you will find these conversations as engaging as I did and learn a thing or two in the process. Don't forget to send us your comments, criticism, and praise. To do so, you can email us at hello at rvltr.studio or leave a comment online. You can also subscribe to the podcast on our website at rvltr.studio. Mark Wainwright is the founder and principal consultant at Wainwright Insight, a sales consultancy for professional services firms. After over 20 years working with various professional services firms, Mark created Wainwright Insight to address the lack of sales expertise in said firms and to help experts sell better. Mark bills himself as a part-time sales manager for part-time salespeople. Like architects, engineer, and financial advisors who need to get organized, build future sales leaders, and grow their firms. So, thank you very much, Mark, for taking part in this uh, little conversation. You
1: bet. Thanks for thanks for having me, Arno. This is uh, this will be fun.
0: So, can you please tell me who you are and what you do in your own words in three sentences or less? I I think I can do that. Uh,
1: Most architects, engineers, consultants, and other experts struggle with sales, uh, even saying it sometimes. Uh, As a part-time sales manager for those uh, part-time salespeople, I help firms create and run an organized sales function, and I coach individual doer-sellers to increase their skills and confidence with sales. Um, Architects and engineers who are more organized more confident and more prepared, and generally more skillful with sales, can take control of that really messy, often confusing process of finding and winning new work, um, and hopefully uh, become the firms that they uh, have always wanted to be.
0: Sounds pretty clear to me. So in the process of preparing for this interview, you and I discussed many possible podcast uh, topics. Sorry. And ended up settling on the idea that proposals are or should be treated like conversations. What do you mean by that? It's a it's a good one. It is a good one, um, particularly
1: with things that are complex, like architectural services. Buying and selling should be a series of conversations, um, and a proposal is one of those conversations in that in that series. Uh, and it's not just a, a piece of paper. Um, and to be clear, I I separate out. And some of your some of the people who who your audience, uh, some of the listeners, may uh, get a little confused with proposals and contracts and scopes of work and other things like that. I separate those two things out. I don't think a proposal is necessarily ever a, a contract. Uh, Those are those are subsequent documents and hopefully subsequent conversations in the process. But I deal with proposals um, pretty specifically um, where you're proposing ideas and price and and things like that. Um, And I I will note that uh, um, you had a previous uh, episode, previous recording with uh, Tyler Sumala. And anybody who's listening to this should go back to that and consider that part one of this, because we're going to Hopefully, continue on that conversation of of that prickly word 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 of sales, uh, and um, uh, just dig a little deeper uh, into some areas.
0: And there's also another upcoming interview that I just did with Kimberly Selden of the Business of Design. Okay, yeah, where that I think is going to dovetail really nicely into those other two conversations. Perfect. Um, So while we're at it, to make things crystal clear. Why don't we do a little um, audio glossary of what you mean by proposal, contract, and maybe whatever else you think mm. we need to to clarify before we dive mm. deeper?
1: Yeah, I, I uh, you know, the the the, the contract uh, is, you know, and a lot of firms will use a contract they get in America from the AIA, and 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 um, there may be a, a similar sort of prescriptive. Um, Document uh, in Canada and and in other countries may have a a similar document where there's a lot of legalese and there's many clauses, et cetera, and that is your contract. And associated with that, you can have an appendix that includes a um, a scope of work that is as detailed as appropriate. Uh, It outlines uh, uh, a specific fee or 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 price outlines specific terms everything that's agreed to etc that's a contract Mm -hmm. right yeah but in order to get there you need to work through a process of a proposal and proposals are hopefully um uh, almost draft in nature, in that they are ideas that you are proposing, that you are working through together with a potential buyer, pushing and pulling things, uh, uh, modifying things, editing things, uh, getting to the point where you've made some uh, verbal agreement to move ahead, which then prompts the creation of a of a contract. Uh, but we don't want to get to that contract point until we first all aligned around um, what's to be done, uh, price, uh, et cetera, and a few other things that we'll talk about later. I think.
0: Okay, uh, so uh, why conversations specifically, or or maybe if if that's a too vague a question, uh, you said it's a series of conversations how would you explain the the process or the ideal process in your mind to people who may think that, you know, you just talk to a client, send them a proposal by email and then hope for the best.
1: Well, the series of conversations that I hope people are, are having, uh, are, um, getting to know you conversations early on to understand compatibility and to make sure that, um, the two, the the consultant and the 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 client, a potential client, are a good fit that you see things the same way, um, mm-hmm. and that you can be mutually successful together. A subsequent conversation would be a a, a conversation that drives and creates understanding. So it's largely focused on inquiry, uh, and uh, you know the the experts need to put aside their their expertise for a moment and just be really curious uh Mm -hmm. in that conversation and from that conversation comes um some potential uh approaches to helping the client solve their needs and that's the main topic of our conversation today which is that that important proposal conversation and to touch on the why should it be a conversation um is because it's super hard to work through that whole process sort of asynchronously i mean we have a hard enough time you know uh, communicating well through a series of text messages or emails. Things always go sideways, right? So, so particularly in professional services, uh, architectural services, things are complex. These are hard. These are hard complex with lots of moving parts and, 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 uh, and lots of, lots of language and details that, that buyers often don't understand. Things can be misinterpreted. We can't read body language without a, a real live, you know, in-person conversation and we can't respond to questions and comments as they, as they, as they arise. So, um, a conversation gives us that real-time, live interactivity that we really need to move through pretty complex stuff.
0: Yeah, and I can attest to that personally because a number of years ago, I took the uh, Win Without Pitching training, mm. which is sales training. Great stuff, great stuff. And it's it's basically what you described. It's the conversation, like taking the client through a series of conversations. And what I've learned through doing this and I think this is what the listeners really need to, if there's one thing to retain, is that by asking the right questions and listening, listening, in my opinion, is the most important skill, um, you get so much valuable insights as to what your client is thinking, what what their fears are, uh, what they're not telling you it's 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 almost like a superpower it's really mind-boggling sometimes and it is a superpower as a result my what i've experienced often is that i go in to meet with a potential client and having no idea what to expect and i come out with a pretty clear understanding of what's needed and how i can help them if i can help them um so i'm a a huge fan of of the the sales process as a series of conversations. Yes. But um and I kind of alluded to that, but I'd like to hear your thoughts on this. What are the more most important skills required to conduct those conversations?
1: Well, people might expect someone like me, that comes in and talks about sales to say stuff like good presentation skills, good eye contact, good negotiation skills, deep subject matter expertise. All those, all those things, right? Someone might expect one to to, to say that. Mm-hmm. The reality is, throughout all these conversations, like we've mentioned, you need curiosity, you need empathy, you need to uh, have good active listening skills. You need to have. You need to kind of leave your ego behind. Um, you need to have a desire to learn um, and, and a, a desire and ability not to walk in the door assuming too much. You need to be organized uh, and prepared. Uh, you need to be emotionally intelligent in these conversations because eventually someone might say no and you need to not take that personally. Um, and all these things are really things that are associated with just being a good human being. Mm -hmm. And not really things that are associated with, you know, being a, being a good or even a bad salesperson.
0: So the, uh, it sounds like you're describing the antithesis to the salesy salesman. It is. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, so I want to talk a little bit more about proposals and can you describe before we get into the, the way things should be, can you describe the most, common approach to proposals from service providers that you've seen in your career? Yeah, I think the
1: first thing that strikes me is that um, they're generally all about the consultant, the architect, right? They're very little about the the prospective client. It seems like every page, uh, there's an opportunity to talk about yourself again and again and show a picture or, you know, just pat yourself on, on, on the back. And I know most individuals out there, you know, who are seasoned professionals feel that they're, that they're pretty humble, you know, and not boastful and, and things like that. But, um, these proposals just, you know, page after page just seem like they're really centered on, on, um, the firm, the practice, the services offered, mm-hmm. their expertise, etc. which is a little bit frustrating from a, from a buyer standpoint is that they just, they have a tough time finding themselves in those proposals. But, you know, how they're built beyond that, how they're built, they generally jump right into sort of the detaily stuff, the, the scope, the schedule, the budget. They get really, really deep into the technical details. Um, they get focused on tasks and the work to be done. Um Pricing is all over the place. Pricing is a mix of, you know, certain certain dollar amounts associated with certain tasks. There's ranges. Um, some sometimes there's time and materials kind of mixed in there with you know, in this big stack of of, of work and tasks. There's a ton of unknowns that they, they don't know how to price them. Uh there's a handful of a la carte options kind of stuck onto the very end of everything. And then there's a long list of assumptions and exclusions that firms just just love to have. And at the end of the day, um, it's really confusing. And you've suddenly made sort of this confusing thing of actually, you know, buying complex professional services way harder. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: So um, you, in the process of describing what you've seen, you've kind of answered the, the next few questions. So I'm, I'm gonna jump ahead a bit. And say, you know, out of this kind of chaotic um, mess, let's say, for lack of a better word, that you've yeah. experienced as, as part of working with your clients, what would you think, what would you say people should do differently? What's the ideal kind of proposal process from start to finish that people should consider to become more effective salespeople? Great, great. Great. It's such a good question. Uh, so
1: fundamentally, and the first thing I mentioned before was that they're all about the consultant. Immediately, mm-hmm. that needs to get flipped 180 degrees. And so a proposal if, I, needs- if I may interject for a yeah. second, yeah. I yeah. see
0: this in marketing all the time too. Yes, It's like yes. you go to someone's website, it's all about them. It's me, me, me. And it should really be like, you're our prospective client. This yes. is what we can do for you. Yes. And I'm broadly generalizing, but that's that's kind of a disease in the architecture industry. And I'm going to maybe make enemies in saying this, but so be it. I think architects tend to have, generally speaking, pretty big egos. Mm. Not all of them, but a lot of them do. And um, when it comes to marketing themselves, it can really um, bite them in the ass because mm. it's it's always all about them all about um i saw just a horror as an aside but it was just so cringy i saw an architect who's shall remain nameless but pretty f- famous in canada who did a partnership with a big brand that had nothing to do with architecture i'm gonna not gonna say more because otherwise people are gonna find out what i'm talking about um but it was all about him it was all about mm. this is what i believe in this is my aspiration and it looked really cool but it said nothing about mm. It had no relation to what he could do for his client. It was just a pure puff piece. And it was mm. just kind of, how did you get there is the question.
1: Yeah, I I, I actually think a, a very small percentage of, of individuals and firms can get away with that. Because their buyer are people who want to associate and identify themselves with that particular brand, with that persona. So I think that, you know you know, like I said, a, a really, really small number of firms, but the vast majority of firms out there have to, have to, to, to prioritize, you know, client centricity. They have to always put the client first. And I would say that ego has something to do with you. You're absolutely right. But I think the other reality is that, um, uh, when, when we are a, a practitioner, we, and and things are confusing and often with architects, things like marketing and selling are confusing. So when things are confusing, we default back to what we know and what we're comfortable with Mm -hmm. and what we know and what we're comfortable with is ourselves. So we talk about our practice, right? So, so I would say it's not necessarily intentional as much as it's just the default setting of so many experts out there that all they like, all right, we're going to put up a website. What do we talk about? We don't know. Okay. Let's talk about what we don't, what we know let's talk about ourselves. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the default setting and that transitions from, you know, the content on a website and the, the content of a conversation end up being very similar where it's very, you know, consultant or architect centric rather than focused
0: on the client. Yeah. And I like that you flipped that on its head. It's like ego can be a part of it, but sometimes it's just, yeah, it's the only thing people know you're much more diplomatic than I am, I guess.
1: Well, I you know both are uh, they are equally dangerous. Uh, yeah. So so I wouldn't shy away from from saying that firms need to to be conscious and aware of both.
0: Hmm. Um. So let let's because we went on a bit of an aside. Like so, what would be the the process from start to finish of an ideal uh, proposal in the form of multiple conversations? If I can describe it that way.
1: Uh, sure, sure. I I I think that um, maybe I'll start with the uh, you know, start with the end in in, in mind here. I think mm-hmm. that we can kind of reverse engineer this a, a little bit. Um, I would think that the end product, uh, like I said, should be the end product. The proposal should be client centric. It should be developed and created um, to be a conversation first in a document second. Mm -hmm. Now, whether that actually means that you're, you're, you're actually creating something that can be delivered, you know, in a presentation or a conversation, and then you have a document or you just build, you you build whatever you're building in a way that you can communicate it, you know, live um, rather than, you know, attaching a PDF to an email and sending it off and hoping for the best. Mm -hmm. Um, So, uh, it should be created with a conversation in mind. And it, I think it should be could should contain really three main parts. And if there's other stuff, then you can just you know stick it on the back. But first and foremost, it needs to contain something I call a statement of understanding, which is a really clear articulation that's one hundred percent about the client about their situation, who they are, their situation, uh, their their the client needs, you know, potentially what what prompted them uh, to, to reach out to you or to, to understand that they had this particular need, um, in, in, in mind,
0: um, Mm
1: -hmm. you know, and you know, what, what their ideal desired outcomes are, what is the picture they have in their head of success and what does it look like as we walk down the road together to get there? And the last little bit of the understanding that is critical is, is what are the implications of, of not achieving that outcome that they really want? Uh, and, and, you know, what are the implications of achieving that outcome? Cause I think implications are super important. We don't really consider, you know, well, wow, what's all the bad stuff that's going to happen if I just continue along the, my current path or wow, what, what is, uh, what are the implications? What are all the huge benefits that, that I'm going to get that others are going to get, should this, should this be successful? And I think that really the implications part of that entire understanding really kind of turns up the dial a little bit on the the energy and the focus and the urgency behind changing from what we're doing right now to whatever the future holds for us. Mm-hmm. So those components of a statement understanding are really, really important. It should include a simple approach to the work, which, you know, some people say it's a, you know, a, a scope or whatever else uh, that the client can cr- clearly understand. And it's not focused on all the stuff the client gets, you know, the, th- hours, the deliverables, all that stuff. It's what they get out of it. Right. And a lot of times what clients get out of a scope of work are clarity, direction, understanding, uh, you know, good, good, clear communication, you know, all those types of things that that help, you know, simplify and clarify
0: a really, really confusing process. And and just to piggyback yeah. on what you said earlier is that all the um, details of the scope of work can be in the statement of work attached to the contract the the hours the the fees i mean you want to at least a a one fee on the proposal but i think this is where the there's an important distinction to make and that's what i've started doing although my scope of work is usually a lot simpler than an architectural project but The contract is the same for every client and then there's an appendix yep. at the end that contains yep. the scope of work. And sometimes it's just a copy of the invoice. Sometimes it's a bit more elaborate. Right. But I think that's, that's where the distinction needs to be made is that if you want to detail all the 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 hours the money the time the exclusions whatever that's at the back of the contract not in the, right. not in a proposal
1: right it's at the back and and that is something you get to after you have the verbal agreement to move ahead mm-hmm. because that's an additional investment in time and effort on your part that you shouldn't be spending at this point in, in the in the conversation you know the 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 conversations um, as they as they progress um, have Increasing demands on on your time and and energy. If we front load way too much time and energy, if we're if we develop a fully fleshed out Gantt chart schedule and a really complex scope of work and everything else too early on, and the client says no, then you've wasted a bunch of time. So mm-hmm. uh, there's a there's a, 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 a an ever increasing amount of time and energy at, that you're putting into these conversations as they progress. And if they stop at some point,
0: you haven't over invested. So yeah that's, that's and, and it also goes back great. to your point that every step is a conversation because you may need to revise your your proposal based on uh, what the client says when you review it with them, and then you may need to revise your scope of work when you send it attached with your contract. And so, every step of the way, it is a conversation. I really yes. like that approach. It makes a lot of sense.
1: It is. So, it is. And, and I mentioned there's there's three parts yeah. to really good proposals. The first is that statement of understanding. The next is you know your approach, the 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 scope of work um, that probably has some variables and some options in it, and then the last is price. Right, mm-hmm. and your price should be put forward in a really easy to understand three option table mm-hmm. uh, that sits on one page that someone can really understand and 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 read, uh, and then they get to choose which option um, they'd like to buy.
0: I was going to ask you because that's what I've been doing is uh, three. I call it the heavyweight, middleweight, and lightweight options. Yeah. Um, for every project so yeah. that gives clients a, a kind of a gamut of s- both services and pricing pricing right. and then they can pick whichever they want and um so how do you structure those three options because the what i would call the heavyweight in my proposals is usually like fully loaded, everything I can think of under yeah. the sun. And about 99% of clients never go for that one. That's more of the aspirational kind of proposal. Right, Middle ground is usually more or less what they ask if their expectation of, in terms of budget, is roughly aligned with what I normally charge. Mm-hmm. And then the lightweight option is like the bare bones option um, that they can go for preferably they would go for the middle option uh, right. how do you st- tell your clients to structure those cuz i'm i'm curious to see if
1: well there's a there there's you know we would have to have a part 2 to this podcast in order to run a, really dig into this cuz it's fascinating you know pricing is fascinating and most firms approach pricing from a cost plus standpoint meaning they take a rough guess of you know or an educated guess or use a very sophisticated sp- spreadsheet or they use you know a, throwing a dart at a dartboard to figure mm-hmm. out how many hours it's going to take to complete a particular uh, uh scope of work a particular project and you know there's they stick a little margin on top of that and they say okay here's your here's your price um but uh the the, the problem the problem with that approach because all that kind of rolls up typically in, in what looks like one option. The problem with only providing one clear option or, you know, a, a messy collection of a bunch of different numbers is that it, it, it's, it makes it hard for someone to buy. Someone doesn't want one option. People like to choose. Mm-hmm. right? And not only do people like to, to be able to choose, they like to co-create the the, the final thing with you. Right. So giving them three options gives them the needed context they they require in order to make a decision. Oh, light, medium, heavy, small, medium, large, whatever the three options are. It gives them the ability to compare those numbers inside your proposal. If you only give them one option, they have to go to someone else to get a comparative number. Right, mm-hmm. and you don't want to do that. You, you want people to you want people to choose how they'll work with you, not whether or not they'll work with you. Right, mm-hmm. and I think that's the core of having these well structured options. Now, I will always kind of make sure I asterisk this and say, it's you can't give them too many. Right? There's a great book and a TEDx talk and a bunch of really wonderful stuff from a guy named Barry Schwartz, and it's called The Paradox of Choice, Right, where if people are given too many options, they won't be able to choose one and they'll be paralyzed.
0: Yeah, it's right. like when you're standing in front of the canned tomatoes at the store and there's 20, 30 different options, you don't know which one to choose.
1: Exactly. Exactly. When well, people say, Oh, no, I choose just fine. I choose the one I always choose, which, which is, is, is understandable. If it's something that habitually you do week in, week out, month in, month out, whatever else. But sometimes people are only buying professional services like this once. So mm-hmm. they have no idea. Right? Yeah. So but you can't give them too many options and you can't just give them one. So you have to give them the right amount. And it seems that three is a good amount. Right. And how I recommend firms structure it has less to do with what's included and what the amounts are and, and all that. It has to do with, um, you know, a small option should either get them to where they want to be or get them close, but not incorporate a bunch of things that they likely want or value. Mm-hmm. The middle option should be something that uh, you can provide, get where they want to, to, to get to, helps them achieve the, the objectives, inc- incorporates a bunch of things that you know they'll need Um, and is, you know, something where both of you can be mutually successful. You know, Mm -hmm. the, the, the big option is the kitchen sink, right? Take all of the options, exclusions, exception, like all of it, and just, just throw it in there. And if it's a really, really high price that they'll never, ever buy, that's okay. They look at that. And then suddenly they use that really high priced ones and look at the other two and they say, Oh, those other two look like a pretty good deal. It's called right. anchoring, right? It's called anchoring, right? It's called yeah. high anchoring. And and I, I will also say this. If people out there are thinking this will never, ever work in my complex high dollar professional services, they are wrong, right? Mm-hmm. This works all the time because we're not dealing with this, you know, really deep, rational thinking that's going on in people's heads. We are dealing with, you know, sometimes irrational, a little bit illogical, kind of fast thinking that happens in, in people's minds that often, you know, either, you know, guides good judgments or clouds other types of, of, of decision-making. Um, but it's at play in all of our heads and it's called cognitive bias, right? And there are a whole bunch of different kinds of cognitive biases. And what the one you just mentioned, anchoring is, is one of them. And all these cognitive biases are at play, particularly when we're talking about price, because price creates this very sort of, you know, kind of carnal sort of like, you know, this really base human reaction, like this fight or flight, almost sort of a, a reaction in our brains. And we have a tough time sometimes, you know, separating ourselves away from all this, all these these biases that are at play in our heads and really thinking about it rationally. Very rarely does that happen.
0: Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Um, I think you're right. We might need to have another conversation about we pricing may. alone. Because um, I wanted to ask you about value, and but I think mm. it's getting a little too far out of the scope of this conversation. So maybe you can briefly touch on that, um, mm. pricing uh, based on value versus you know hourly or any other form of value yeah. what you do
1: it's it, it, it's complex, but so without getting into the details, I will say one thing I think that most people completely miss about value, and that is that value exists completely in the eye of the beholder. It's like beauty, mm-hmm. right? They are in complete control of the value that they assign to something. And our goal as salespeople is not to, you know, make a value proposition or make guesses or assumptions about something that someone will assign, assign value to something that people will pay for. Right. Cause I think a lot of times we think people will pay for a certain thing when they, they, they don't care about that Mm -hmm. right so that is the one thing i will say about value is that the buyer consumer whoever is in complete control of value right but in order to be successful in 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 you know speaking to value using value in the conversation the the only uh, the option that a seller has is to uncover the value uh, that people assign to a particular thing they're really finding out what's most important to them. If you can find out what, you know, the top two or three things that are most important to someone and then price those appropriately, great, you'll have a you will have a, a successful sale. If you're pricing things uh, that people do not care about, it's gonna be a tough road.
0: You kind of answered that in a circular way, but I wanna push back against the idea of that value isn't strictly in the eye of the beholder because it is largely, but you can influence. Hmm. Via the conversations we've been talking about by listening and understanding what the client values, which is what you just said. Yep. So it's, it's, a, I guess, just a different way of putting it, but, um, cause I think it's important for people to understand that they can influence the process, even though the ultimate decision is in the hands of their clients, mm. they can affect how the value of their services is perceived and therefore be more successful at, at selling them. Mm. Does that make sense? I'm 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 with you on that one. It is uh, it is it is an, value
1: is an often misunderstood but incredibly fascinating uh, concept. And uh, most professional services firms do not understand it, do not leverage it, do not consider value when it comes to the services they offer, uh, how they put together you know scope and how they how they price things.
0: Which takes me back to what we were talking about earlier. It relates to how they market themselves as yeah. well. Because if you market yourself with a focus on the value you can bring to your clients, and I'm I'm a firm believer that architects are the holder of a tremendous holders of a tremendous amount of value. They just don't know how to leverage that. Mm. Um, because they default to what everybody else is doing, what they've learned in their yeah. careers. Yeah, yeah. So I think we've covered pretty much all the points I wanted to cover. I just want you to to maybe give a couple pieces of advice to people that want to start on the the journey of uh, becoming better salespeople and maybe this time just focusing on proposals. What should they do now for the most immediate results? Mm. What's the one or two things you would recommend?
1: Right. You know, I think first and foremost, it really goes back to, you know, why we had this conversation in the first place is is that regardless of what their proposals look like or what they contain or whatever else, just start thinking of them as conversations and not, you know, a PDF attached to to, an email. You know, the expertise and time that we spend on developing these proposals is a completely fair trade for 60 minutes of someone's time to have a meeting, walk it through, have a conversation. Right. It's it's that is that is critical. And if someone is not willing to have that conversation with you, it is a powerful leading indicator that they may not be a really good fit to to work with. Mm -hmm. And if you often are working within very prescriptive, you know, RFP situations where you don't have access to the client to have these really great conversations, that's another red flag. That says, you know, should you be out there selling services to people who are using really, really poor buying processes, who don't want to talk to you, even though you're going to be working with them potentially
0: for years? You know, yeah. is this a really good way for them to be buying these services? And likely, it's not. It's not. There are people in Canada, I'm sure in the U.S. as well, who are fighting for procurement reform because too many times. Um, a complex architectural project was procured by someone who spent a lifetime procuring stationery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And those are not the same things. Um, you can't understand com- complex professional services if you spent your life procuring simple products Agreed. Agreed. in large quantities. Um, but the other thing that I've learned from uh, Win Without Pitching and Blair ends and his team is that they without breaking the law or doing anything unsavory advocate for trying to circumvent the inability to talk to the decision makers when you're in an rfp situation and mm-hmm. try to they call it derailing the process and that's a fine line to walk because you can very easily go from doing something uh, that gives you a slight competitive edge to breaking the law so i would caution people and mm-hmm. to do their own due diligence and make sure they're not breaking the law before they engage in yeah. such behavior. But there's value in trying to circumvent the process and get the information you need by talking to the right people.
1: I I I totally agree. I have a I have a current client that I work with that received a, an email communication from uh, a municipal agency, transportation department, or something like that, that said, "Hey, we had a recent public, you know, RFP out there, and nobody responded, or not enough firms responded in order." to you know meet yeah. our requirements. Yeah. So they sent back a note and they said, you know, what did we do wrong? What 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 should we have done instead? Right. Like why didn't you why mm-hmm. didn't you submit? Yeah. And, you know, I had to hold my back, hold myself back and say, well, you did everything wrong. Um, but yeah, I, I think there is there's a little bit of a, of a movement out there for professional services firms to start pushing back a little bit and not submitting and not playing the game and say, look, you know, you can't you can't purchase a really complex thing. You know, with a, a a piece of paper, you just can't.
0: No, it's not possible, and and oftentimes the RFP themselves are so taxing in terms of the information yeah. they require. Um, I did respond to an RFP from uh, the Ontario equivalent of the IAA. Mm-hmm. Uh, AI, sorry, the uh, Ontario Association of Architects to produce a podcast. And those guys did it right because it was uh, what's called QBS, a so qualification-based selection, mm-hmm. where you basically put a short document that it's a, it's a glorified CV with some information, some references. It's actually not very time-consuming. And then if you're shortlisted, they have a conversation with you. And I yep. thought that was the... I didn't get the job, unfortunately. But... Um, that I thought that was a very good approach because I was able to, I thought their idea of what they should be doing to produce the podcast was missing a few ideas. So in the yeah. conversations, I was able to say, look, I understand what you're trying to do, but there's a better approach and here's how we would go about it. Agreed. Um, and that's, that's great. you can't do that if you're just sending a, a, a 50 page document that you spent, a month putting together and it costs you $100,000. It's just not going to work. Right. Um, And it seems like there's enough work out there for people to not bother with RFPs unless they're really big firms who can just afford to sink in the resources. But... um, there are ways of, I know clients who've gone public work without going through the RFP process because they were involved beforehand in like yes, either right. finding the land or securing the lease or whatever. And then they ended up getting the job as a result of that. So there's those other ways to circumvent there that. Are. Um, so that was great. I think uh, that's enough for two days. It was pretty heavy in in, mm-hmm. in content information, which is great. I, I really enjoy talking to you. Um. But before we part ways, any last words, last words of wisdom that you'd like to share with the audience?
1: You know, there's just so much great information out there that may not be connected to the architecture, professional services world about sales, about how to price, you know, about what a really good buying and selling process really looks like, about what those conversations need to contain that I think a lot of architects and other experts just need to kind of take their, take their blinders off a little bit. And, and, you know, kind of explore the world, of universe, the universe of, of great information out there, because mm-hmm. it's got, you know, the modern sales has nothing to do with that sleazy, pushy car salesman. And really, it has everything to do with just being a really good human being.
0: Yeah, those are great words to end on. So thank you very much, Mark. It was a real pleasure to talk to you. And uh, I think we'll have to do a few more of those because uh, there's too much to talk about. It's a deal. Thanks Arno. Hey Arno here. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and that you'll come back for more. Please share with your friends and colleagues and remember to subscribe on our website at rvltr.studio. Until next time, ciao.